I'll wait a second till the PowerPoint goes. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew, uh, mostly in Matthew 21, um, but we will also look around at a couple different places. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 21 will be where we begin today. And I'd like to open with the word of prayer, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for your word, that it speaks to us, that it gives us grace, and I just ask that as we hear of the commands of Christ, especially as we think about his coming in, in a few weeks, his first coming uh, at Christmas. Help us, Lord, to remember who you are, uh, both as a baby born in a manger, as a man who died on a cross, and as the God of the world who created all things by the power of his breath. Help us, Lord, to remember these things and to walk in that reality. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, if this was like my high school audience, I would do an experiment with you. I'm not going to do it with you. Uh, but I would have you guys all stand up, and then I'd have you sit down, and then I'd have you stand up, and then I'd have you sit down for a while until eventually people stopped doing it. In the high school realm, there's like two groups. There'll be those who will just, they'll be like, I'll, I'll outlast you. I will keep standing and sitting until you stop. And then there's those who don't even sit down. They'll just be like, no, I already think I know where you're going with this. But when I do that, the issue of authority comes up. The issue of authority, like who has the right to tell you to stand up? Who has the right to tell you to sit down? And in America, as many of you are probably very aware, we are perhaps the most individualistic country on the planet. So they have these series of questions they ask and these series of values, and this, the scales are zero to 100. And guess where the U.S. falls every time? Mid-90s, you know. Uh, Australia is also very independent, but not – we win. We win. We are the most independent nation on the earth. And on one level, that carries with it a certain amount of strengths. You know, we are very innovative. Uh, we, are the, we lead in invention. We value freedom and ind individual rights probably more than most other countries. But on the flip side of that, the, the, the downside to individualism is we also struggle with authority. It's almost built into our DNA. I mean, you think about 1776. We kind of started the whole revolution built on, you don't have the right to tell us what to do. And we've been saying that pretty steadily for several hundred years. Uh, and it's not getting any better, right? And some of our first exposure to authority is our parents. And those of you who are parents or grandparents, you have authority to kind of determine the direction of your children. And how many of you had children that like fought that authority? If you have more than one, I feel like everyone has had that experience, right? If you have more than one kid, that is the case. Um, but in one sense, everybody struggles with the question of authority. We all struggle with someone being able to tell us what to do when it doesn't make sense to us. There's a difference between compliance and obedience. Compliance is, I understand what you're asking, and I'm going to go with it. Obedience is, I don't understand what you're asking, and I'm still going to go with it. And we, we struggle with that. And when we think about coming, the coming of Jesus, right? And here's where we get to our first point. Uh, they, when Jesus shows up on the scene as a baby, we are told he has authority. So when the angels show up and they start speaking to the, to the shepherds, they are told there is going to be a baby. He will be in a manger. And he is, can someone fill it in for me? Savior. He is the Savior. But before we get to that, he is Christ the Lord, right? This little baby is the Lord. He has the authority over your life. And that's crazy. What I want to do, though, before we jump into today's text, is I want you to think back, Old Testament, what are some prophetic promises or prophetic tellings that this baby, this Messiah, will have authority over life? He will have the right to tell you what to do. 
So think about some of the Christmas prophecies that readily come to mind. I want you just to think about the fact that the authority of Jesus didn't just come on his birth. We were told of his authority before he even showed up on the scene. So give me a few, and if not, I'll, I'll fill in the blanks. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, go ahead. Uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Yes. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Very authoritative, right? Very, very authoritative. What were you going to say? I was going to say Psalm 2. Yes. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord, Lord will have derision. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Yes. Like the authority, and he can dash the nations with pottery, I believe is in that same, yeah. like pottery with a rod of iron, right? He has the authority. Maybe one more passage dealing with the authority of Jesus before he's even, before he's even born. The other famous Christmas one, Micah 5, that there will be this baby who will be born in Bethlehem, but his origins are from ancient times. Like the idea that he has this authority coming from the line of David, from Bethlehem, this little teeny nowhere town, and he's going to have this phenomenal cosmic power that he comes from. And so we have angels and prophets from not just the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, but from hundreds of years before telling us this baby is going to have authority over your life. He is going to have the right to tell you things. And the text we're going to take a look at is going to be in the last week of Jesus's life. And the Pharisees have this struggle with Jesus. And they will phrase it this way many times. By what authority do you fill in the blank? By what authority do you heal? By what authority do you do this on the Sabbath? By what authority do you teach? By what authority do you do these miracles? When you read the Pharisees' interactions with Jesus, the question they constantly bring up is the question of authority. And Jesus' steady answer pretty much is always, I hear what the Father tells me and I speak it, but you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? He, he claims authority from himself and from the Father. And today's text we look at in Matthew 21 is going to deal with that. But, what I, but before we jump into the issues the Pharisees have, I want you to think for a second, and I'm not going to have you like share but what teachings of Jesus do you struggle with? What authority does he claim over your life that you wrestle with? That you're like, I know you're the God of the universe, but what you're asking just doesn't go with what I want to do or with what I feel like I can do. So just take a moment because, again, I think it's easy to like condemn the Pharisees as these horrible people without identifying with them. Because the struggle of authority is a struggle we all have. And I think almost the more we grow up in church, the more religious we are. Sometimes the more struggle we actually have with Jesus' authority. So I'm going to give you about 10 seconds to think about your personal struggles with Jesus' authority, things he's told you to do or commands he's given that you're like, oh, I don't really want to do that. And then we'll launch into to the text. So we see that Jesus' authority shows up very early. And the Greek word is kyrie, and many of you would probably be familiar with that word. It's the word that's translated Christ in the, or sorry, translated Lord uh, in the New Testament often. And it's similar to the Spanish word senor. Do I have any Spanish people that knows anything about Spanish? Good, then I'll state this and you'll all just accept it as fact, okay? In Spanish, if you say senor, it can be translated the same way kyrie is, Lord. It could be translated like Lord Authority, like God himself, or how do we often think of the word senor, sir or mister? Kyrie works the same way. 
It can be used, depending on the context, to mean the Lord or sir, authority, but not necessarily like high authority, more like a title given. And so Kyrie is that kind of word. And oftentimes when they interact with Jesus, especially coming from his humble circumstances, sometimes they call him Lord and they're probably really just meaning sir. Like it's nothing more than that. And other times there'll be people who will call him Lord and you can tell the difference oftentimes which one is which because again the way that their response but before we jump into the text i just want us to remember he is more than just a sir it's easy to think of him as like yeah he's higher than me but to remember that the bible as we already laid out gives us these contexts to think of him as infinite the infinite creator the one who is equal with god who has become a man and come to earth and it's easy to say lord very easy, especially at this time of year. I mean, we think about how often Christ will be on the lips of people, right? I mean, every single time we say Merry Christmas, even if you're not a Christian, people are going to be saying and thinking about Christ a lot. And in our culture, to say that Jesus is Lord doesn't really carry much cost for us. But when Paul tells the Romans that everyone is to believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with their mouth, in Roman culture, what was the confession that they were making that could get them into trouble? Or more accurately, what were they not confessing as Lord? Caesar. Caesar. And to declare Christ as Lord and not Caesar as Lord could get you in a whole world of trouble. Right? And so when Paul calls them to say, there's two ideas that go with this idea. There's the heart component, the belief. To believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And from that belief is going to flow a confession. We can make the confession a very easy thing because it doesn't cost us anything. But for the Roman church, when they were told you must confess that Jesus is Lord, there, there was a cost there. there was a, that was a statement that carried weight with them. And so for us, as we think about the Christmas season and how easy it can be for us to declare Jesus Lord, I just want to put a challenge there to say to declare Jesus as Lord carries with it two kind of ideas. The first one is to declare that we will submit to his authority. So what are we declaring when we say Jesus is Lord? We're saying first that you're my boss. You're the, you're the authority over my life. And when you tell me to do something, I will comply. Has anyone ever worked with coaching or been an expert in a field where people had to come to you for direction? And it's, I, I didn't plan to coach this school year. Like it was definitely not on my list of things to do, but we couldn't find a coach. So by the way, if you ever know of anyone Christian person, has some free time, can coach soccer, please let me know. Uh, but, you know, players will often call you coach, which is the equivalent of saying you're my boss. And then they'll sometimes do what you tell them to do, and sometimes they won't. Which then puts the whole thing in a category of you say one thing, but then you do something totally different. And that just gets very, very confusing and very annoying, right? And there's a time in Jesus's life a couple chapters before this in Matthew 16, when he started to teach the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem to die. And do you remember what Peter does? He gets in Jesus's face and he says, never, and then does anyone know what the next word is? Never, Lord. You notice the, the, the paradox, the irony of that statement? It's like, okay, Jesus, I know what your mission is. It's to save humanity, but no, oh, Lord. You're my authority, but I'm telling you what to do. Now, how often do we do those kinds of things? Where we're like, yes, I declare you authority, but then I choose not to do what you say. That is the first problem with calling Jesus Lord if we do not actually obey. The second part to Lord, though, is the idea of relationship. That we are in 
a relationship with him, to be able to call him Lord Savior of my life. You know, it's kind of like a used car salesman who uses your name a little too easily when he's trying to sell you something, if you've ever been in that fun experience. To have someone use your name but not have a relationship with you can come across very falsely, I guess. So in a not overly familiar scene, but I'm sure many of you are familiar, with the It's a Wonderful Life storyline, right? After, how many of you have never, sure, surely everyone has seen It's a Wonderful Life in here? Is it, do I have to explain the background to anyone? <laughs> okay. When he wishes that he'd never been born. Do you remember that scene? And then he finds out he never has been born, but before he realizes his wish has been granted, he goes to the, to the pub, right? And he sees Nick. And he's with Clarence, and Clarence is ordering like these just wild drinks that this guy's like, we serve hard drinks for hard men who want to get drunk quick. We don't know if this, what you're asking is nonsense. And, and George keeps calling Nick by his first name. He's like, Nick, Nick, just cut him some slack. Nick, cut And eventually you notice Nick's attitude towards George gets more and more annoyed. And do you remember what he says? Why do you, <laughs> why do you keep calling me Nick? Where do you get off calling me Nick? You don't know me. Because George had never been born. And Nick gets very frustrated with this guy who keeps using his name so casually. But in Nick's world, there is no relationship. Now, is it possible that we do the same thing with Jesus? We call him. We use his name. But we don't have any relationship. We're not with him regularly. We're not talking with him. And in a similar way, we can end up, in a sense, abusing that name. Not, not that we can't call on him, but to call on him without the trust, without the submission, without the relationship, comes across like George talking to Nick like he knows him. And so for those of us who have family and friends who at Christmas time specifically may be a little bit more free in thinking that they have a relationship, I think there'd be a humble place for us to be like, you need to be careful with how you think of Christ. Because you call on him occasionally doesn't necessarily mean that you have a relationship with him. And so Jesus will say, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He's like, there's a paradox. There's like a, a problem with that way of looking. And the Pharisees are going to be some of the biggest problems with calling God Lord, but then having an issue with him. So the pushback on Jesus's authority, uh, it will always happen. So when Jesus is born, there is shepherds that declare him Lord. There are these wise men who come looking for a king, but then there's Herod. And he hears that there's a contrast to his authority, and he goes about trying to remove that authority. And whether, and whether it's Herod trying to destroy Jesus or the Pharisees trying to destroy Jesus, I just want us to remember our own attitude of, of the heart. Jesus claims to have authority over me in every area of my life, both private and public. And there are times where I struggle with that authority over my life. When I'm in that place, I am kind of in the Herod mode. Like, I have a throne that I want to protect. I have, an, I have a thing in my life that I kind of want to keep. And I don't really want you, Jesus, messing with that throne. Now, most of us are not going to go as extreme as Herod did. But I just want to notice that attitude within Herod is alive and well within me. Anytime Jesus puts his finger on something and says, give this up for me. Do this for me. Forgive this person on my, my behalf. And I shirk that or sh push that off. I'm operating kind of like a Herod situation. I'm basically saying, you don't have the right to say that to me. And Jesus declares that he does. So in Matthew 21, this is, this is finally we're getting to the text. Aren't you glad? Matthew 21, we'll be taking a look at verse 23 uh, down through 32. 
This is probably Tuesday, Wednesday of the last week of Jesus's life. He's already cleansed the temple. He's already started um, making his way through Passion Week to the end. And this is where we pick up in verse 23 of chapter 21. Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And here's their question. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And here Jesus does what Jesus always does. You ask Jesus a question, what's he almost always do? He asks you a question in return. With the idea, if you answer his question, your own question may end up being answered in the process. So he's like, John's baptism, where did it come from? They discussed it among themselves. You can imagine all these like holy guys are like drawing back. They're having a little powwow. Jesus is just like, I'm waiting. (laughs) And we get the inside scoop of what's going on in that conversation. If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe in John? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they're in there. They're like a catch 22. So they answer Jesus. We don't know. And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Then he's going to switch gears. I am going to read the next part. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in a vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you. So Jesus is going to actually answer their question. John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So we have this this challenge to him. Okay, And they're asking the question about authority. And one of the unique things that Jesus never hesitates to do is take, the, take the, the title teacher or rabbi. Now, the problem that the Pharisees have is Jesus didn't go through their system to get this title. Okay, And it's the equivalent today. right? You could be a very intelligent person, but if there's no university backing you, what's the rest of the world kind of think of you? Yeah, like if you are smart, we don't recognize your intelligence. So this guy, right, very famous. We got Einstein. Anyone know roughly his IQ? Now, granted, IQ tests are post-applied to people of a certain generation. They estimate that his IQ is somewhere between 160 and 170. Keeping in mind, the average American IQ is around 100. So you take an average person, their IQ is 100. There's obviously people lower than that. And then there's Einstein, who's way above that, okay? So we all recognize him, very famous, very intelligent. Anyone recognize that guy? If anyone did, I would be impressed. This guy's name is Chris Langan. He has an IQ of 190 to 210. They can't quite gauge. He, he is so brilliant that IQ tests, he, he doesn't miss anything consistently. All right? He is more intelligent than Einstein. But here's the problem with this guy, Chris Langan. He has a hard time staying in school. So he, he never finished, and he had all kinds of weird jobs. He worked as a bouncer, a firefighter, a construction worker, and the guy has an IQ of 190 to 210 because no authority system will back him because he hasn't gone through the system. Jesus kind of serves as a Langan kind of character 
There's like the teachers of the law who are very intelligent people who've gone through the system, the Einsteins. And then there's this, this rogue, intelligent, authoritative being who just walks into their midst. And unlike Chris Langan, Jesus doesn't just say, I have my own authority. He actually uses his authority to begin to undermine the authority of the teachers of the law. He starts to actually undermine exactly what they're trying to build up. So when we think about this, Jesus walks in in a very strange way. He takes the title of teacher and rabbi, but he doesn't go to any of their schools. He teaches with authority, but he doesn't quote anyone except the Old Testament. He doesn't say this rabbi supports what I'm saying or this tradition you know, supports me. Jesus is a, a figure that comes in unexpectedly. And this is near the end of Jesus's life. And the Pharisees are like, where do you get the right to do these things? By whose authority can you do this? And then Jesus does something brilliant. He turns the tables and he says, well, what about John's baptism? Now, I want you to think about this. John is out in the wilderness doing what John does. John says, my main mission is to do what? What was John's point? Baptize for repentance, right? Prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And all the people recognize that John was something abnormal, right? I mean, God had not sent a prophet to Israel 400 years. Silence. Malachi closes his book. God does not speak through a prophet for 400 years. John shows up all of a sudden. People are like, whoa, we've been missing this for a long, long time. And everybody, except for the religious leaders, recognize John's authority. And Jesus says, okay, authority, you know, religious leaders, where did John come from? Did John come from God or is he just a human? And if they answer the question, they reveal their own bias. Because when they asked Jesus, whose authority do you preach by or whose power do you drive out demons? What was their already pre-made answer to that question? Where did Jesus get his authority according to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Satan. They already believed that fully. So when they're asking this question, are they actually genuinely wanting to know? They are not. They're trying to reveal that Jesus doesn't have any authority and they're trying to make it publicly recognized that this guy is a lone ranger. Don't follow him. We already know where he gets his power to drive out demons. It's from Satan. And Jesus will spend another text answering that accusation. But here's just this challenge. Where did John come from? And he uses their fear against them because he knows they can't answer this question honestly. They can't say he comes from God because they don't believe he came from God. Because what was John's main message? Jesus is the Messiah. There goes the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. So he does answer their question. He's like, you already know where my authority comes from, and you don't want to believe. You don't want that. You don't want what I have to offer you. And so they, they're trapped by their own fear. But Jesus does something a little bit unique that he doesn't normally do. He launches into a teaching, and then he's going to explain his own parable. And if you know Jesus' ministry in Matthew specifically, he'll tell all kinds of stories. He doesn't always explain them. But in this case, he does. Because he wants to get to the second question that the Pharisees don't want to ask. Here's the real question. If my authority or if my power could be answered to you, would you follow me? Because at the end of the day, it's not a question of can I prove the authority of Jesus. It's is my heart in rebellion against whatever he says. And he wants to show that their heart doesn't really want authority. It's not just the question of where did he get his authority from. Jesus says that's not really what you want to know. You want a reason to not believe. And then he tells this story that every one of us has probably had an experience with, with two kids. Um, 
It's the question of basically what happens in the heart of a person towards authority. And so he's like, let me tell you a story about a guy who had two sons and he asked him to go go do work in a field. Now, you know, that's not the worst thing you could be asked to do, but how many of us really want to go out in the middle of the summer day and work in a field? You know, like that's not high on our list. And so he goes to one son and he says, will you go and look at the text? What is the son's answer? Verse 30. No, this is the second son. Sorry, I skipped the first one. Which one you want? Verse 30. The second son. The compliant one. I go, sir. I go, and notice that word. Sir. Sir. And what word is that? Lord. Kyrios. Kyrie. And so he's like, I'll go, sir. And then he never goes. And then the first son is like, I ain't going. And then he changes his mind. Now, how many of you have ever been in that position where your initial answer to somebody was like, no. And then the spirit works on you and you feel bad and your mind has changed. And you're like, you know what? I need to do that thing I was asked to do. And you go. And he's like, well, which, which one is actually doing the will of the father? The seemingly disobedient one at the beginning who has a change of mind. And it'll be the same word at the end of 30, verse 32 that says repent. Same word. Repent is to change your mind. Or the son that's like, yes, of course I'll go, Father. You are the Sir Lord after all, and then doesn't do anything he's asked to do. And then he's like, Pharisees, which ones are you? He's like, you're the, you're the ones who think because you declare God is Lord and say yes so compliantly that you're in a good standing. But he's like, but you haven't done any of the things that God has commanded you to do. You don't take care of the poor. You don't look out for justice. You don't seek to make the loads of the people that you have authority over lighter. You make the loads heavier. You take advantage of the poor. You're greedy. You're full of lust. You're full, you know, in Matthew 23, the seven woes, he's going to slam them even harder in about two chapters. But he's like, you think you are in the right place because you say, yes, Lord, but you aren't. And in fact, the ones, and he says prostitutes and tax collectors, you know, it's like, you know, you almost have to spit after saying those two types of people you know it's like because it was just so abhorrent to a pharisee he's like but these people the ones you can't stand they're coming to the king they're coming to me and they're repenting and they're changing and he makes this interesting statement he's like the changes of these tax collectors and prostitutes is another sign that my authority is real how can you explain the change in these people tax collectors aren't taxing people anymore prostitutes are giving up their lifestyle The world is changing around you, and you refuse to do this. Humble yourself and come through the pet door. You're banging on the door, demanding to be let in, and he's like, there's these people who are humble, they're bowing down, and they're coming into the kingdom before you. Not in a time of order. It's not like the prostitutes and tax collectors get in and then the Pharisees. He's like, they're coming in, and you're not coming in. Because they're willing to humble themselves lower themselves, come through the doggy door and find that they're now in the kingdom of heaven. And you who think you have the right to the kingdom of heaven are banging on the door and you're not getting in because you're the son who says the right thing but doesn't actually do what is being commanded of them because you think you're under the authority of God but really you're in rebellion. And when John showed up, your rebellion was revealed. And when I show up, your rebellion is revealed even deeper. And the thing that challenges me personally is these are the religious leaders of his day. These are the people who know the Bible. These are the people who pray regularly. These are the people who tithe up to the 10th of their spices out of their spice rack. They're so dedicated and religious, but they're missing it. 
And for me, it's like, is it possible that I would be the son that says, yes, Lord, but then when I feel conviction to do something, I'm like, nah, not really. And I could think I'm in a fine place and not be. Because again, when Jesus challenges them, it's, it's a pretty painful challenge. And he is very, very insulting to them in a way. But he's only insulting because he loves them. He wants the teachers of the law and he wants the Pharisees to actually submit to the authority of God and receive the salvation that would come. And yet they won't. Even though they see Jesus doing miracles, even though they watch him drive out demons, even though there's all these people's lives being changed everywhere he goes, people are repenting. People are changing things. They're giving up their sins. They're living a different way, but they don't want to see it. So they're just kind of like putting their blinders on and moving forward. And he's going to say, basically, you don't want to know. Your heart towards authority is consistently one of rebellion. And so we have our manger scene, right? We have Jesus being born in a manger. And that's a struggle for us, a king who comes in such poverty. And he says, my, my kingdom is one that's coming, and it's a future kingdom and a present one. And so we have, the, he's like, the kingdom has arrived. And then we're also told that the kingdom is still to come. And we live in this tension. And I think that tension sometimes is a struggle, right? So it's like we look at the world around us and we have to ask the question, is the kingdom of God growing and is it here? Or is it still some future event that Revelation talks about? And the answer is yes, it's both. And I think many of us, and maybe it's just me, the older I get, sometimes I just assume the kingdom is like a future thing. Because I look around the world and I'm like, it doesn't look like your kingdom's coming right now to me. And Jesus would challenge that and say, but my authority is here. My kingdom is coming. And it is here, even though it's not completely here yet. And so I've told the story before, I believe, anyway, um, living in the not already and not yet. If In 2010, for pretty much the entire year, if you would have asked me, am I a father? I could say yes and no. Anyone can figure out why that could be the case. Melody was pregnant with Cademan. So... Technically, I'm a father, right? There is a baby that is my DNA, and he's mine. And yet, on another level, is he here? Am I raising him? Am I having to deal with the consequences of a child yet? No. So in one very real sense, you could say, I'm already a father and not yet a father. The same thing kind of happens when we pay our bills, right? If you still actually mail things, you know, with stamps and don't just automatically withdraw all your bills. If you put the stamp on your electric bill, you put it in the mailbox, you put the flag up, have you paid your bill? Yes and no, right? It's an already the bill is paid and not yet is the bill paid. And Jesus says the kingdom is just like that. It's here, it's complete, and yet it is not all the way, all the way here yet. And he's calling us to live with the hope that of the fact that God is working in the world, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. But then also to give us confidence to know that the evil we see doesn't mean that God is failing. There is a future judgment coming that's going to take us by storm. And it's going to come at a time we don't expect it, and it's going to change the world. And we have that hope. And so here's where I'm going to move to my last, my last text, Matthew 13. One more parable in verse uh, 31 of Matthew 13. Flip to the left. And it's one of the parables he tells about the kingdom. And I picked one of the ones that's a little bit unique. Um, 
He has a whole bunch. In Matthew 13, the whole chapter is like a series of parables. Some of them you'd be familiar with, the parable of the sower, for example. We all know that one. Uh, But in this one is one of the ones we're less familiar with. And I'd like to read it to you and then draw three quick applications, and then we'll be done with the, the teaching this morning. So Jesus tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all, the, all of your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large mound of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Jesus spoke all of these things to the crowd. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Now, one of the things that he's going to kind of emphasize here is the coming kingdom is like this little teeny seed. And when we think about Jesus's birth, he will use the same analogy for himself. So he'll say the kingdom is like a seed and I am like a seed. Jesus shows up like a helpless baby, six and a half pounds or whatever he weighed, not able to focus his eyes, couldn't control his own bladder. If you would have looked at him at that point and said, this is the one who's going to do all of this, we would be like, I don't see it. At the same time, If I held up a mustard seed and said, this is going to become a tree, (laughs) if you didn't understand how growing things work, who would believe a seed becomes a tree? Like you can't look at a a seed and be like, oh yeah, I see the tree in there. No, we don't. We couldn't look at Jesus and see what he was going to do either. And he says, unless my life falls to the ground and dies, then no fruit comes, but I have to. And he says, my life and the kingdom are very, very similar. And so in this case, we are told that there's this mustard seed, and this mustard seed is very slow growing, right? It takes a while. A mustard tree or bush or whatever it is, is different than like corn. Corn takes like, what, six months? I don't actually know. Does that sound right? You seem like a farmer type. Maybe a little long, a little less, four months? I don't know. It doesn't take long in the, the growing thing, but you plant a mustard seed, it's going to take years before you get anything out of that, and it's slow growing. And the kingdom of God is much the same way. But even though it's slow, it's incredibly powerful. You think about Acts 1. How many believers were there on day one of the church? 120. How many believers are there now in the world? Depending on how you count them, over a billion. Now, that didn't happen overnight. And Lord willing, by the grace of God, the church is going to continue to slowly grow. Now, there's parts of branches, maybe in the U.S., where it looks like maybe some things are shrinking back. And there's other parts in, like, Central America and Central Asia where the church is growing gangbusters. We have to remember that it has the power to break a rock. And that rock, I think, is two things. It could be the kingdom of Satan, and God's overwhelming that. But it also means the rock of my own unbelieving heart at times. The gospel can slowly change me. And he's slowly changing the world. The struggle we have is with this word right here. Slowly. Slowly the seed grows. Slowly it makes change. It also brings conflict. One of the other parables that we're not going to read today but is in here is the weeds. There is an enemy who sows the wheat right alongside the weeds. There is going to be conflict because a weed and a wheat plant growing side by side are in conflict with each other. They cannot coexist. And when Herod is introduced to the idea that there's a new authority on the scene, even though clearly this baby is a a direct threat to him, he's an older man by this point, and it's a baby. Like, there's no chance that Herod is going to have any trouble with his authority from Jesus. And yet, his desire to be in control is so overwhelming 
that he will murder babies to keep a future problem from even happening. And that launches Jesus's life. And if you look at Jesus's life, there is conflict all throughout. And we are sometimes, at least I am, surprised that there's conflict in my life for being a Christian, as if it shouldn't happen. Where did we get that from scripture? That there isn't going to be conflict in our lives because of what we, what we follow. And if we are following consistently the teachings of Jesus, there is conflict outside, and then again, conflict from within. If you are ever tempted and pulled in two different directions, we can look at it and be like, Jesus, why aren't you working in my life? But you might be able to make the case to your own heart. The fact that there is conflict means he is working. Because before you were a believer, was there a conflict to sin? The real question just was, which form of sin am I going to pursue? It wasn't a question of whether I'm going to sin or not. It was just which form. But now that you have the spirit of God within you, now there is a legitimate conflict within you. And rather than looking at that as a bad thing and a problem in your faith, maybe we could look at it and say, maybe that's a sign that God is actually doing something in me. The conflict of Herod basically revealed that the king had come. The conflict within you has revealed that the spirit may actually be working in you. And last but not least, we're told of this particular, in this particular growing illustration, the kingdom of heaven is like this seed that grows into a giant bush. And then he says, all the birds of the air can come. There's different interpretations as to what Jesus may mean by that. I'm going to go with the one that fits what I'm going with today. Okay. (laughs) Just in full disclosure. I think what he's saying is as we mature and grow, we can be a support to others. People can come to us and find strength, find joy, find peace, find prayer, find the will of God actively taught so that they can find what they need, what they're looking for. Now that takes a mature believer, right? It says when this tree has grown, this is what happens, but it is going to happen. And my hope and my prayer for you and for me was as we get mature in the faith, that there would be opportunity for those who are looking for something to find shelter with believers. You know, we sometimes have a reputation, and I think often it's inaccurate, that the church is defined by what it's against versus what it's for. I don't think that's entirely fair, but may that be not true for us. Again, it's not that we don't hold against things, but really our holding against things is because we're holding to Jesus so tightly, and that we would be the kind of people who would be open to the birds of the air to come. And again, some people would say this illustration is really that these birds are coming to attack the tree. Either way, are we the kind of people who can invite those into our lives who are easy and who are difficult and be able to say the kingdom is here? The kingdom is here. And may you see that in my own life as I grow and as I develop in Christ. And so I just want to end with our Christmas authority picture of living in the tension. Um, I think the holiday season provides a unique kind of tension for us. You know, there's the, the appeal of the world's understanding of Christmas, and then there's the church's definition of Christmas. And as Americans, I think sometimes we can kind of get split both, a little bit both directions. But I just want to call us to be the kind of people who are seeking the Savior, to be like those shepherds. They weren't looking for Jesus. Isn't that kind of unique? They, they were not after, you know, outwardly looking for him. But when the truth was revealed to them, they focused on that Savior, and they went and they found him. And then it tells us that as they left, they praised God and told everyone that they knew about what they had seen. And what did they get out of it? On one level, nothing. 
And yet on another level, they were given the Savior, the Savior of the world who would die on a cross for them. And most of them wouldn't even be alive when it happened, right? 30-something years from this point, many of these shepherds would be gone. But they knew that the Savior had come, and they knew that the world was going to be different. And may we as people, moving into the Christmas season with all the, you know, the glitz and family time and travels and snow and all the things that go with it, uh, may we be able to sort through what does it mean to live with the truth that the Savior of the world has come and he is Christ the Lord who has the authority to tell me what to do. And when he starts to poke areas of my life to say, do I have authority in this area? Do I have authority in this area? May we be able to surrender and say, not never, Lord, but yes, Lord, you have all authority over me to do with me as you will because you're the king of the universe and you gave your life for me. The least I can do is give my life right back to you and may your kingdom come. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that by no work on our own, there is favor from you that you have given peace to men on earth. You've given favor to people on earth through Christ. Help us, Lord, to live with that reality. And in the areas of our lives, as I assume will always be the case, where there's areas we do not want to submit to you, where we want to be our own authority, help us, Lord, to see that as a problem like the Pharisees never could. And may we surrender ourselves to you and say, yes, Lord, do with us as you will. And if that means forgiving, if that means being more generous, if that means uh, serving in a way that we, we would rather not, help us, Lord, to, to just die to ourselves and find that in doing so, we actually experience your life lived through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.